that is written there. Every word is perfect. Every word proves true. You are watching over your word, Father, at all times to perform it, to bring it to pass. So none of these words can fail. None of these words can return to you void. And so, God, I give you thanks this morning and praise you and ask that you would enable me to rest in the sufficiency of this word while I preach. Lord, watch over my tone, watch over my heart, watch over my intentions. Please do the same for everyone that hears. Father, help us listen this morning. Help us listen to your word. This I ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to imagine, if you can, a young couple madly in love with each other. After dating for a few years, they decide to get married, but just before the wedding, the young man's in the Navy and he gets a call to war. And just before he sets sail, not knowing exactly when he'll return or if he'll return, he gives her a little picture of himself, a small portrait of just his face so that she won't forget. And it turns out, of course, that he's gone for way longer than either of them hoped, but she had that picture. And the picture kept her sane. She stared at it every day, almost the whole day. She had it on her desk while she worked. She had it in her purse while she shopped or went anywhere. She kept a copy of it in her car. She would take it out when she talked to people and she would show them and tell people about him. And as she would look at it, it seemed like she just fell more and more in love with him all the time and couldn't wait for him to come back because of that picture. And one day he did. They ran to each other and embraced, so happy to finally be back in each other's arms, but it just wasn't the same for her. It wasn't the same for the woman. And as they tried to pick up where they'd left off, it just wasn't working. And he could tell that something was wrong. So finally, even though he didn't really want to, he got up the courage to ask her, what's wrong? What's going on? And she said, I just can't be with you anymore. And he said, why not? Heartbroken. And she pulled out the picture and she said, because I love this picture. And I just want to be with my photo. She walked away. I know that sounds crazy. I know that sounds insane. Why in the world would you want to be with the picture when the person in the picture was standing right in front of you? Why do Christians still want to be made right with God through rules and regulations and behavior when Christ has come? Why do Christians still want to trust their own obedience and good works to find their hope when Christ has come? Why be in love with a picture when the person in the picture has come? Why love shadows, beloved? when we have the substance. Paul turns the corner in Colossians here. And we should be asking as we go on from here in this letter, what are, since we've been talking about it, since Paul's been talking about it, what are the implications for us of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in how we approach maturity in Christ? What does it mean for us that Christ is supreme and sufficient and superior on a daily basis? The answer to those questions summarize, summarizes the rest of the entire letter. 
And the whole text this morning is shaped by two therefores. Two major implications of the truth we've been reading about in these, this first chapter. And the text here is so thick with gospel truth. I'm praying. And I only say this because I'm your pastor. I've been praying for you all week. I've been walking in this room praying for you. Praying that God would enable all of us to bow before this text this morning. To stand humble under this text this morning. Because if we listen, this text is going to challenge everybody in the room this morning one way or another. Will we receive this word with humility since it is able to save our souls? Or will we reject it in favor of our own wisdom and our own feelings? Here in Colossians 2, Paul told the believers in Colossae that since they had died to this world with Christ, since that had happened, they didn't need to trust the spirits of this world to gain spiritual maturity or to find confidence and hope. So let's head into this text. I'm going to begin in chapter 2 at verse 6. We're going to work our way through verse 23 this morning, but let's start in 6 and 7. Therefore, therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul introduces us in this section to the primary way he argues to make his points in almost all of his letters. Paul argues using this method called indicative versus imperative, or indicative and imperative. He will tell his audience what is true through Christ for them in the gospel. That's how he'll start a letter. And then he'll tell them how that should affect their daily lives. It's a way of arguing that not only proves his points very well, but also shows us most importantly that all Christian behavior, all commands that come to us through Christ are implications of the gospel. The gospel is what shapes the commands we've been given. That we're called to live certain ways, not to make ourselves right with God, but because we've been made right with God through the gospel. The reconciling work that God has done for us in Christ is uniquely displayed in the specific ways believers are called to live. And each letter Paul writes then very uniquely answers the question, if this is true about Jesus... If this is true about the gospel, what would the result be in my life? That's Paul's modus operandi. And Colossians is no exception. That's why we read one of Paul's favorite words in chapter 2, verse 6, therefore. Therefore. That word means that whatever came before it is the key to understanding what follows it. So from 1.3 to 2.5, Paul's stated truth about Christ to the Colossians, to us through the Holy Spirit. And now he will tell them in verses 6 through 8 and following, what that means for them as it relates to the issues they're facing in Colossae. As the means, he is saying, as the means of defending yourselves from being deluded by plausible arguments, walk, that is, live your life as one rooted fully in Jesus Christ because you are. As you received Christ... So walk in Him. In the same way you did one, do the other. How did they receive Jesus then? Through believing by grace, through faith. So it turns out 
Believing the gospel is not just how you receive Jesus. That's how you walk. That's how you live in Jesus. Believing the gospel. Believing by grace through faith in Jesus. The way we stay in is the same way we got in. The grace that enabled us to believe at first is the grace that enables us to keep believing. So we aren't people that are going to live like they don't know whether or not we're okay. Like we don't have, or like we still need a lot of answers. We live as one, we're meant to live as those, rooted and built up in Christ. Because we've been established, we've been placed in Christ. And our roots don't move. We walk as though Christ is the source of our lives and the means of our growth, stable and steadfast, as he was talking about in one twenty-three, And the state of mind, he's saying, that results from that kind of gospel realization... The tone with which we're meant to live is thankfulness. That's that's meant to mark believers. They are abounding, overflowing in thanksgiving. So the entire tone of our lives, the whole attitude overall of our lives, will be determined by our ongoing focus or lack thereof on what Christ has done for us. We don't live like we don't know whether we'll be all right. We walk in an overflow of thanksgiving because we know very well that we'll be all right. Because we're rooted and grounded in the rock. Paul knows that it's, it's interesting. Paul knows that the unthankful mind, the ungrateful person, still clamoring then to find peace and joy and hope and truth. He knows that mind is a playground to be deceived by plausible arguments. Arguments raised up against Christ that seem to make sense. Paul wants to guard their walk. And so look at what he commands in verse 8. This is a command. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's saying... Be taken captive only according to Christ. Let Christ alone be our master. We're going to be captives to something. What will it be? The world or the one who made it? Things and people or what things and people were created for? We're going to be slaves to something. Paul says, see to it. This is an important and worthwhile pursuit. Make sure you don't get taken captive by things like this, and we're going to define these things a little later, actually, as we work our way through. I think we need to feel the full weight of Paul's argument here to understand exactly what is being said. So we'll move back now with Paul into the indicative again, into this is what is true, right? He just moves from this is what is true to this is what you should do. This is what is true to this is what you should do. Verses 9 through 15. Four. See that shift Because, do this because, in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Him. And you have been filled in Him, or you are complete in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That is why you would not want to be taken captive by anything other than Christ. Let your Master be Christ since He embodies the fullness of God. Which means if in Christ is the fullness of God, no one and nothing else, no other powers or systems even have pieces of God in them. All the fullness of who God is abides in one place, in one person, in one truth, Christ. And He, Paul says, that is in you. The head of all rule and authority, the one to whom everything and everyone answers, is already ours, believer. Already ours. And He tells us what has happened to us since we are in Him. And He is in us. You see what He's doing? Paul is arguing that what Christ has done in us and to us and for us gives us an identity. Gives us an identity. A distinct identity that should keep us from needing to go looking for one in anything or anyone else. What Christ has accomplished is amazing for all who believe. Look at this. We've been circumcised spiritually by the death of Jesus whose whole body was cut off. You see that? His whole body of flesh was cut off for us and thrown out for us. When we believed in Jesus by grace through faith, our baptism symbolized that we were raised with Him from the dead. It's a picture of what's happening. Born again as God's children, not children of the world. We go in that water, we come out His No longer a citizen of the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven when we come out of that water. We are no longer identified, therefore, by anything external or earthly. Right? We're now identified completely by what Christ has done for us. Our identity isn't found in anything that can shift. It's in something that never shifts, that never changes. We were dead, but God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins by literally canceling our debt. Forgiveness is a declaration because of the blood of Jesus about you and I. It's God's call. It's nobody else's call. The record of debt we had incurred because we failed to meet the legal demands of the law, we never paid our bills, has been nailed to the cross of Christ. Nailed there. All the spiritual powers of darkness were put to open shame. So all the evidence they could bring against us to accuse us, God humiliated them in open court by holding up the record of Jesus. And the declaration that our forgiveness was nailed to the cross, that that's where it was found and made and done and finished. God triumphed over death and hell and the law for us in Christ. All its legal demands. He shamed everything that could take us captive. 
everything. So what have we not been forgiven of, believer? Over what enemy or power or philosophy or principle has God not already triumphed in Christ? We lack nothing we need to grow and become mature. This is the point Paul is making here. We lack nothing we need to grow and to become mature or to be forgiven and to have new life. All because of what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. So now, Paul will move back into the imperative. What are the implications in our lives of that gospel truth in verses 9 through 15? Look at 16 through 19 with me, please. Therefore, there it is again. Therefore, let no one, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now we know what the false teachers are doing. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival. Or a new moon. Or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let No one, there it is again, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, denying yourself things, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So we find here, again, even though we can't give it a proper noun label, we find that the false teaching in Colossae that created the need for Paul to write this letter, the major issue threatening the believers in Colossae was legalism. Legalism. Man-made rules and regulations that they were teaching were necessary to follow in order to mature and in order to actually have a good standing in Christ. Do you want to get serious about God? Do you want to grow? Do you want to know that you're accepted by Him? Then, yes, you need Jesus, but you also, if you're true, if you're genuine, will do these things too. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. That's in the air. All the time. All the time. Yes, Jesus, but... Can you read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 and put a but at the end of it? Can we do that? So through the Holy Spirit in verses 16 to 23, the Apostle Paul puts legalism to open shame. Jesus Christ has come. He is here with us and in us, church, those of you who believe. He has canceled our debt with its legal demands. What are we still making payments for? He has triumphed over all our enemies. The implication of that is that then we don't need to make rules to live by that we think will keep us in good standing. These things are substanceless shadows They're shadows. That's all they are. 
Instead, since we lack nothing, we need to grow and become mature. And since we lack nothing, we need to be forgiven and have new life. And we have all of that, not as a result of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Don't let anyone shake your confidence. Don't let them do it. Don't let them shake your hope with the shadows of how to get those things. The shadows of how to get a good standing with God. The shadows of what makes you a part of God's people. A shadow of what gets you forgiveness and righteousness and hope and confidence. Don't let anybody pull you away from Christ alone to find those things. Don't let anybody do that. It doesn't matter who they are. The laws were shadows. They were shadows, beloved. They were Regulations and Sabbaths and religious observances were mere shapes of what would actually save and sanctify us and make us His people. And that the base of Paul's entire argument is, listen, now that the substance they existed to point to has come, their usefulness to identify us as God's people has passed away. That's what he's saying here. So when it comes to what you're allowed to eat, Jesus has declared all foods clean. When it comes to what you're allowed to drink, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. When it comes to festivals or what days you should hold over and above other people, Romans 14 teaches that it's up to each individual believer when it comes to that. Paul even says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So no one is allowed to say to you, that you have to take part in any certain festivals or celebrate any certain holidays in order to really be Christian. Don't let anybody tell you that. When it comes to the Sabbath, its substance has come. Christ is our Sabbath rest. We're no longer under the law. And you, you, you can't break up the law since the Bible doesn't. And say, well, you're technically, you're not under those laws, but you're under these laws, which means you have to arbitrarily create which laws you're under and which you're not, because you have to guess, well, there's moral and there's civil and there's ceremonial. They're all moral. It's all moral. If God says put the cup here and you put it there, that's a moral disobedient act. These false teachers are trying to bind the consciences of the believers in Colossae. Paul alludes to with their visions, right? Their reasoning. Watch out for folks, even when they mean well, when they start off sentences with, God told me. I hope they're going to quote the Scripture right after that. It's amazing what God tells other people for you. Like, couldn't you just tell me? Write it on my mirror, the fog in my mirror in the morning. It would be so much easier. But but that's what they do. They're using experience. Probably if they're talking about their own reasoning and puffed up, they use experience as authoritative, right? They they manipulate you with their emotional involvement in something. I just think this is really important. Okay. Okay. That doesn't mean that I have to think it's really important. But this is what's happening in Colossae. Paul says in verse 19 then that those obsessed with rules and regulations like this 
those operating out of their own convictions purely in personal experiences, they have a loose grip on Christ. That's why there's so much that they're trying to hold on to because their grip on Christ is loose. They're not holding fast to the head. That's powerful. They're like that. And they always insist on everyone else being like that because they've lost a tight grip on Christ. Not because they're more mature or more holy or more righteous. They're not holding fast to the head. So the only thing they can find hope and confidence in are rules and regulations and their own personal ideas of what it means to be holy to substitute for their lack of pure faith. And I'm not, I don't mean to demonize. I'm telling you that is burdensome on us. That Paul is saying don't let people like that control who you are. Don't let them define whether or not you have faith. Don't let them define whether or not you're righteous. Don't let them see to it that nobody takes you captive by those kinds of things. Three times he hits on that in just, what, 17, 18 verses. We grow God's way, Paul says. We grow God's way when with a firm grip on Christ we grow together by all of us, he talks about this in Ephesians 4, by all of us insisting on the truth of what we already have in Christ, not by believing shadows, not by legalism. Not everything called growth is from God, beloved. There's a growth that comes from God, and there's a growth that comes from humanity. And Paul says in verse 18, don't let anyone convince you that you don't belong to Jesus by getting you to loosen your grip on Him with their own convictions and hold things over you that God is not holding over you. We're different from the world. We're meant to be different from the world. That's how the world does everything. They hold guilt and pressure over us until we break, until we become apathetic, until we can't handle it anymore. That is not Christ. That's not Christ. Those are the elementary principles of the world. They're not according to Christ. That's not the way it works. Look at verses instead, Paul is saying. Look at verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? My goodness. I've said it before, I'll say it a million times, that's why my little boy's middle name is Paul. I love Paul. I love him. Look at that sentence. You can see him pleading with them. From prison, this man. Remember, he's in prison if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. None, zip, 
nada rhymes with hero, zero. None. Nothing. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So, regulations come from the elemental spirits of the world, beloved. They are not according to Christ. Notice what he says here about all these rules these barriers that we set up like the Pharisees to keep us from disobeying the commands that actually have been given. Apparently the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us, is not enough. You need to set up other barriers just to make sure you don't sin. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Don't even, don't, don't touch it. These regulations all refer to things that go into our body and pass out of it. Right? You don't make rules according to those things. They perish as you use them. They're gone. They are like shadows. They have no actual substance. They come from human precepts and human teachings, human tradition in verse 8. And beloved, we tend to give rules like that, a kind of divine status, when in actuality they're nothing. And yet somehow they have the power to control people and lord things over their consciences, and it's devastating. And that is why Paul wrote Colossians. Why do these kinds of man-made rules and regulations have such power? Because they're plausible. This has been his whole point here. The latter part of chapter 1 on into where we are now. These things have power. These rules have power. They delude us because they're so plausible. Who would argue with some of these things? They seem so wise and so responsible and so holy. Who would argue with these things? We get deluded by the kind of plausible arguments that make us doubt that holding fast to the head is enough to make us mature and grow spiritually. We just, we, we can't handle that. That maybe just by believing in Christ, by grace through faith, I will mature. No, no, no. That's, you don't understand how people are. You're going to tell that to Paul? You, Paul, so sad. If you just knew people, Paul. If you knew what people are capable of. And he would say, yeah, what do you mean, like like murdering Christians? You think you ever met anybody capable of that? I did that. Paul did that. That's what he's saying. Paul's talking about legalism, about man-made rules and regulations that are supposed to show we're more holy, supposed to make us more mature, supposed to get us closer to God. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Indeed, they do. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul, couldn't you have said some value? Just make it so much easier. These kinds of rules certainly seem responsible. They do. They certainly seem like they would keep us from doing evil. They certainly look like wisdom. 
if you're speaking of self-made religion, then they make sense. If, you're, if, if you think asceticism, denying yourself all kinds of things, is the way to get close to God, then those rules would make sense. That's what Paul is saying. Then they would be wise. And severity to the body, get really serious. Oh, they make perfect sense if you think those things will bring you closer to God or make you more holy. The problem is that in actuality, now that Christ has come, they have no substance. None. Paul does not say, beloved, Paul does not say here, and he never says, all right, listen. Listen, come over here. Listen, I know we're not technically under the law anymore. And none of us are bound to follow a list of rules per se. We get that. But honestly, if you want to get more sanctified, if you want to mature a little bit more quickly, if you want to really grow and get close to God, there is a little bit of value in creating some rules or mixing in some of the law with our Christianity. No, there isn't. God inspired no value. None in man-made rules to stop the indulgence of our flesh. Batteries are not included in regulations. The Word of God says that man-made rules and regulations, convictions and mixing in the law is of no value in killing the desires of our flesh. None. Beloved, only Christ does not perish as He is used. Only Christ. For all the weight that we tend to give to our pious and sanctimonious rules and traditions, they are completely worthless to fight the flesh. Completely worthless. They don't get rid of desire. They don't make us more holy. Which means what they do have the power to do is cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish so that other people think we're really Christian while the inside rots because there's no hope in Christ. Right? There are people that murder other people that will stop at red lights while they're driving. Right? The outward adherence to rules means nothing here. So what would happen to us over time if we build our churches and our own identities on shadows rather than substance? What would be the danger of that? What would happen to us because of that? The enemy is so deceptive. We forget that like, we don't battle against flesh and blood. Beloved, our enemies are not Congress and, and the media. And I know, I know, I'm not denying any of the nonsense. I'm simply saying we're deceived when we see them and think that's the enemy. That is not the enemy. We do not battle against flesh and blood. That's not where the battle is. But we're putting all our front right before that stuff. Well, the devil just works so that we believe this kind of nonsense. When we do not hold fast to Christ, we put our hope in the elementary principles of the world to keep ourselves from being worldly. A church that marries the elemental principles of this age will be a widow in the next, beloved. They pass as quick as they come. 
The coming of Jesus into the world to accomplish the work through which God will reconcile everything has massive implications for everything. Even the law. Even the law. What are the elementary principles of the world? What is that? Well, it's, it's principles and philosophies filled with empty deceit, human tradition, human precepts and teachings, food and drink laws, festival laws, new moon and Sabbath observances. That didn't come from the world. The law was given by God. How is part of it now thrown in with the elementary principles of the world? If we're tracing Paul's argument here. That must be an important term because it pops up again here in verse 20. Paul does something shocking here for the good of our souls. And I'm going to try very hard. I'm not going to. I'm not going to preach another text right now. But I do want to read it to you. Because I think we'll start to realize, oh, this is vintage Paul. This is always going on. This is always something he's fighting. The terms are the same. The the tone is much harder in Galatians where I'm going to read from because it's gotten much worse there than it was in Colossae at this point. And it's, it's a sad thing, but like none of these churches exist anymore. Ephesus apparently never got back their first love. Laodicea never heated up or got cold. It never made a call. Colossae isn't there anymore. The, 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 the region in Asia Minor where all these churches were is almost predominantly Muslim, beloved. What happened? They didn't listen. They didn't listen. I just, I want you to, I want to color in this argument. I'm going to read Galatians 3, 21 to 4, 11. I'm going to read it fairly quickly. But I want you to listen to the way, to to the similarities of Paul's content and his goal here. Okay? Galatians 3, 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, which is what the promises of God are, a promise to give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Wow. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. But, no, 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 no buts. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, in Him, right, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Wow. Heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When we were under the law, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved, See now what Paul is telling the Colossians not to let happen to themselves? Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Do you know they were trying to tell them in Galatia? You guys need to also get circumcised, you Gentile believers. That's the yoke of bondage Paul is talking about, the law. Those are the elementary principles of the world now that Christ has come. That reasoning. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain saying to the church in Galatia, if you go back to that, if you go back to the law and circumcision as a means of becoming God's people and right with Him, I have completely wasted my time with you in Galatia. That's what Paul is saying. And here again, his tone is not as hard, but he's arguing the same direction, using the same kind of terms, because the problem is universal. These are the elementary principles of the world we're talking about, beloved. They hang in the air all the time. We inhale and exhale them every second of every day. It's poison. You can't read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 about how great Jesus is without understanding that if that one has entered our world, there are going to be some ripples in the pond, so to speak. And this is one of the largest. The law. Rituals, rules, and regulations has been fulfilled. Not voided, fulfilled. So when the law is seen in light of Christ's liberating and redeeming work, it is now relegated to the elementary principles of the world. It's happened, or it's heaped in with them when we are talking about methodologies or regulations that can give us any standing with God. It's massive teaching. If we try to make ourselves right or better with God through the law, through regulations and rules that seem reasonable and wise, we are willingly walking back into prison and saying, lock me up. I prefer to be a slave. To a master that is nothing but a shadow. Captivity to Christ is freedom from every other guardian and manager. It's the full force of Paul's argument. Since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, don't use them to gain spiritual maturity or for your confidence or your hope. Submitting to regulations to fight your flesh only makes sense if you aren't in Christ. If you still need something to deliver you. Beloved, we have Christ to deliver us. We are in Him. 
We died to this world with him. We no longer live in it. We are no longer enslaved to it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This idea that we need to make our own rules, that we are the ones who know what is best for us, that we can safeguard our faith with rules, that comes from the Garden of Eden, beloved. It comes from the serpent. And it was put into the DNA of humanity and the soil of the earth that we have the knowledge to determine good and evil. This is where the elemental spirits of the world began in humanity. Which means, in amazing irony, nothing then is more worldly than legalism. But with Christ, we have died to the elemental spirits of the world. We are dead to the idea that through rules and regulations we can give ourselves a better standing with God than Christ can. We are dead to the idea that we can keep ourselves in good standing with God through adding rules and regulations. The world thinks that's how you earn a God's favor. It's not how those who are in Christ think they earn God's favor. Dying to this world with Christ means we no longer hope in empty things to make us right with God to grow spiritually means we hope in the sufficiency of Christ alone. We don't measure the value of an argument by human standards or what appears to have wisdom. We measure the value of every argument against the fact that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ alone. You know you're about to hear a plausible argument when you hear the word, but... I hear what you're saying, but plausible arguments are legalistic arguments that promise maturity through keeping regulations but have not been constructed according to Christ. Now again, think of what Paul is saying. They appear to be something like all shadows do. It's what a shadow is. It appears to be what you're looking at. It isn't. It's just the shadow. If we don't hold fast to the head with both hands, we have no hope to mature God's way. We, we can't have one hand gripping Jesus and the other gripping man-made rules for a composite to gain confidence and hope and maturity. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So very quickly, just consider the four commands in this section in light of their rationale. As you receive Christ, so walk in Him. Verse 6. Be held captive by Christ. Verse 8. That's what he's saying. See to it that no one takes you captive by the elemental spirits of the world. Verse 8. In other words, let substance hold you. Let something with a grip keep you. You are complete in Him. Verse 9. Thirdly, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of man-made religious regulations. Verse 16. Through Christ. Perfectly. It's chapter 1, verse 22. Fourthly, let no one disqualify you by insisting that you keep man-made regulations. 
no matter how sensible or plausible they appear, verse 18. In other words, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Chapter 1, verse 12. You're already qualified. No one else has any say in whether or not we're qualified before God. So what is the real goal of regulations? Why do we make them? To keep people from making the mistakes that come when we indulge our flesh? I understand that. God says that won't work. It says regulations are powerless to consistently hold down our flesh. Rules like that come from human reason. You know, well, we, we probably better make this rule because the potential is there for evil if we don't. And you know, we don't want to cause people to stumble. Okay, then let me ask you a hard question. Maybe. Then why do we still have potlucks? Because you might be tempting somebody to be a glutton. Right? We're not, gluttony is the sin we can't talk about. But don't worry about safeguarding that one. Right? Because it's, it's not as embarrassing in the public. Right? We don't normally think of overeating as unchristian. So we don't need to safeguard that one. Bring all the food you can. Eat, 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 eat. We need consistent arguments, beloved. Consistent arguments. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him alone. You see what happens when we step outside of gospel truth and try to be smarter than the Holy Spirit for people? We're going to fail because we aren't Jesus. We can't step in and try to make people righteous by our own wisdom. Paul says that's worthless. doesn't matter how strongly we might feel about why someone should have this and not that or celebrate this holiday or abide by this rule. Christ is the head of the church, not our own consciences. What does Christ being the head of the church have to do with our behavior? Why is that here in this section? Because Paul wants us all to know that Christ is the head of the church, not us. He doesn't want people going around disqualifying people and upsetting people with their own rules and regulations and own convictions. These are His people, His sheep. Paul is saying, see to it that that doesn't happen to you. This is a massively important text. So if we know regulations have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, why do we insist on making them? Beloved, what is the agenda? If this is our agenda, what is the agenda to appear righteous or to be righteous? And if we really want in our hearts, we mean well and want to be righteous, we have to bow before the text and say, all right, only Christ can make me this way. Beloved, try to grab a shadow. Try to hang on to it. Try to talk to it. Try to have a relationship with it. Try to make it give you a raise or make your life better or give you hope. Try. They pass away. A shadow can only mimic what you do. Right? Shadows only occur when they stop the light from getting to something. That's exactly what regulations do. They block out the light of Christ from penetrating our souls so that we have something that looks like righteousness but actually has no substance. 
Beloved, don't be taken captive by what seems plausible. Don't do it. Be free this morning. Be free from that. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. We are complete in Him. We have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And with Him we have died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if we were still alive in the world, do we keep insisting that by submitting to regulations we will kill our flesh? That's a worldly thing, not a Christian thing. Legalism is worldly. It blocks the light. And beloved, Jesus is enough. He's enough for you right now. And He always will be. Focusing on Jesus and what He has done for us are enough. That's what 3, 1 through 4 is going to start with. Paul is going to say what does have value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, but that's next week. Jesus is always relevant because no matter the question or the issue, Jesus is always sufficient. That's what I hope you will leave with this morning, is that Jesus is always sufficient. Always. Trust Him. Trust Him. If you know him and you struggle to have confidence and hope or you are struggling to mature and grow, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's that the way it's done is through Christ alone. Your eyes on him, both hands holding to him like he's the only hope you have because he is. If you don't know Christ this morning, if I'm talking about a Savior that is completely foreign to you, He will receive you this morning. What he did at the cross is completely sufficient to pay for every ounce of debt you've incurred before a holy God. You come to him and he will accept you and he will make you his own. And the terms will never change. Salvation is not a loan. It's a grant. And you don't even have to get the tip. You are his forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to listen to your word in these moments. Father, as we play this last song, as we pray, Lord, if I'm down in front here, if anyone wants to come and pray, I pray, Lord, that you would enable them to do so. And I pray, Father, that we would be a church that is settled under your word and stable and steadfast under your word, that sees Christ alone as sufficient. Lord, I I pray that you would have your way. I pray that you would have your way for every person in this room, for our church, and for our town. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.